The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Lord, before the Ancient of Days, you are seated on the throne. You are crowned with dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve you. And we praise you and take joy, comfort, and hope that this shall never pass away. For your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom shall not be destroyed. Therefore, Lord, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, for you, O oh God, are our refuge and strength. You are a very present help. Help us now, we pray. Open our eyes so that we might love all the more the good news of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Uh, two weeks ago, we read the story of Peter, remember? All the way back then, two weeks ago. We read the story of Peter and, and this vision that he had of a large sheet being lowered down from heaven by its four corners with all sorts of animals on it, animals that a Jew would consider unclean. And if you remember, Cornelius, this, this Gentile centurion, he also had a message from God to send some men to go and get Peter and bring him back to him, that Peter had something to tell him. Peter arrives to this congregation of Gentiles, and the, and the main message is really summed up in verse 28 as Peter says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The main message is that the gospel is not only for Jews, but it's for all peoples, all nations. And at the end of this chapter, what we, what we see, what we'll see, there's another type of Pentecost going on at the end of chapter 10 as the, the Holy Spirit is poured out this time on Gentiles. And if you remember Acts chapter 2, the, the first Pentecost, the miracle of tongues emphasized that people with many different languages, they heard the gospel. And we can mistakenly think that that, that original Pentecost in Acts 2, we can mistakenly think that this is a gathering of Jew and Gentile, when in reality... The people of many languages were Hellenistic Jews. They were Greek-speaking Jews. They had their Jews from the diaspora that were scattered among the nations. So they, they took on the languages and the cultures. But they're, they're coming as Jews for the feast, for the Feast of Pentecost. So they're, they're Jews. And yes, they represent many nations or languages. So it wasn't a collection of Gentiles there. But now, here in Acts 10, we see a similar outpouring of the Holy Spirit resulting in tongues. And this communicates to the Jews that, that these Gentiles, we have something in common with them. That they're not unclean. 
but they have the same Holy Spirit. God was showing them the reality of of this vision of the sheet. He was saving. He was calling Gentiles clean. Clean in Christ. And Peter understood this and responded by commanding that they should be baptized in the name of Jesus. So Acts chapter 10, again, it's it's a massive turning point in redemptive history as the gospel goes to all peoples and all are declared clean through faith in Jesus. This morning, the focus, our focus is going to be on Peter's message and the various ingredients, really ingredients for the gospel, a message that is to be spoken. The gospel is to be spoken, right? There are true facts concerning the gospel that we should know and communicate. So whoever actually said, I guess it wasn't really St. Francis of Assisi, I've, I've been told. Whoever actually said, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, didn't choose his words very carefully there. Because that's not true. The gospel is good news. Concerning specific, unchanging truths, truths that, that communicate that are communicated by words. So let's read these words. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to pick it up at verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, before Peter gives us the specific details of the gospel, he gives us a principle of grace. The gospel is good news that contains specific truths, and it's a message of grace. As Peter says in verse 34, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter understands the vision wasn't simply about food, but more importantly, it was, it was a lesson about people and God having the right to save or declare clean whomever he chooses. God shows no partiality. Or another translation would be, God does not show favoritism in dealing with people. But you might read verse 35 and think, well, that doesn't look like grace. It looks like God accepts people based upon their works by, by fearing him and doing what is right. And I suppose, okay, this would be a time to pause and remember the interpretive principle of scripture interpreting scripture. Quickly thinking, well, that can't be, right? Because what Peter, that can't be what Peter means because Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. And by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So remember that as an interpretive principle. Another helpful principle to keep in mind is, is always context. What was Peter's emphasis here? Is it how a person gets saved or who is saved? The Jews are, they're known for fearing God and doing his commands. But the, but the lesson is God is not partial his grace is for people of every nation. So the point of verse 35 is not to say a person can be saved by fearing God and doing good, but that God is an impartial judge, that he doesn't show favoritism to Jews only, but will accept anyone from any nation on the same basis that's always been true all throughout the Old Testament, which is faith in God's promised Messiah. One person uh, rightly said that a good life is acceptable in God's sight only when it leads to recognition of its own inadequacy and to accept to acceptance of the gospel. And Peter himself made it very clear that there is no other name under heaven other than Jesus. No other name by which we must be saved. It's grace. It's grace. No one merits God's favor. We do not merit it by race, sex, status, or even by doing more good than another. You didn't even merit salvation by your good decision to love Jesus. Did you know that? Not even that. 
Because grace comes first. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Your choice of Jesus is a result of God's love for you and calling you and opening your eyes to his glory. Even our choice, the wisest possible choice anyone will ever make, it's a result of God's grace. By his grace, he mercifully opened your eyes and caused you to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Grace is God's sovereign choice to have mercy on whom he has mercy. And we cannot influence his decision. It's not based on us. If it were, if it were, then wouldn't we have something to boast about? Boast about in ourselves? Wouldn't we have somehow merited his favor? And if so, that's not grace. God is absolutely impartial. He doesn't pick a team based upon superior abilities or character. He doesn't pick the winners. If anything, he chooses the weak and the foolish in order to highlight the glory of his grace. We are not clean because of our inherent differences, but God has graciously made us clean. He has made us clean and acceptable in Jesus. So with this in mind, what is the gospel message? How should we share the good news? As Pastor Bill said in last week's message, it's important to be able to tell our story of how God changed us, but it's important to be able to, to do more than that. Because there are people all over the world who have stories of how their life was changed by things like 12-step programs and inspirational speakers. So Christianity is about more than personal growth and, and current happiness. It's about eternity. It's about what God has done to bring about peace. And this is really the first and, and overarching point of the gospel given to us in verse 36. The good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And what this implies is the reality that apart from Christ, we're at war. Apart from Christ, we're at war with God. Or as Paul described it in Romans, we're under his wrath. And this is an important detail to give because, well, most unbelievers simply assume that God is okay with them. People say, well, yes, of course, nobody's perfect, but hey, I'm no Hitler. I'm basically, you know, comparatively a good person. This is what people assume. They assume that hell is for the mass murderers and the rapists and not for sweet little old grandmas who aren't Christians and never really seemingly hurt anyone. Why would she need peace with God? Because God says everything's not okay. God says that the world is in rebellion against him. And we know that this is what sin is and all are sinners. This means that ultimately people want to fight him and kill him. And the evidence of this is that when God actually did take the form of a man, this is exactly what happened. 
mankind is at war with God. And the first announcement of the gospel is that peace with God has been accomplished. It's been accomplished for those, for those who will have it. Peace has been made by Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace, after all. He is the only one that could do it. And in saying this, Peter concludes by saying, He, Jesus, is Lord of all. In other words, it's for all of us. Both the problem and the answer involves Jew and Gentile. Jesus is not only Lord to the Jews, but he is also Lord over the Gentiles. And something else meant by this phrase is that he, the Lord, is God. No mere man can establish peace by removing all of mankind's offenses. Only God is able to do this. So peace, peace is an overarching point of the gospel. A second more specific detail that Peter gives has to do with the baptism of Jesus. And when we think of John baptizing Jesus, what do we tend to think? We, th- we think of Jesus identifying with us, Jesus identifying with man. We think of Jesus answering John's protest by saying, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In essence, he's saying, I want to identify with mankind. I want to do everything that I'm supposed to do. And this is true, but the reason that Peter mentions Jesus' baptism in light of the gospel has to do with another identity. It has to do with the one given by the Father when he anoints his own Son with the Holy Spirit and with power for what awaits him. All four Gospels, do you realize that all four Gospels emphasize his baptism? And it's because God the Father spoke from heaven and authenticated Jesus as his Son. All four Gospels emphasize this. A couple of them give us his birth. Nothing in between, really. Yes, Jesus, as a young boy at the temple. But do you ever, I mean, we kind of want that, right? We want to know what happened in those other years. Well, it's not important. This is really the beginning. Here's the beginning. Jesus at his baptism. His father declaring from heaven, anointing him, the The Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the disciples hearing a a voice, hearing God's voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so a critical point of the gospel is that Jesus is uniquely the son of God. There's no one else. There's no other way of salvation. He's the one. He's the one, the only one that God sent and declared to be his son. God set his seal of approval on Jesus and he tells us that he is the one we should listen to. Not Muhammad, not the Buddha, not Confucius, not any other so-called prophet, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, no one. Not anyone else, because God declared from heaven and many witnesses heard him say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. 
So what are some ingredients so far for the gospel? Jesus gives us peace with God. And Jesus is declared to be the only son of God. And a third ingredient that Peter gives has to do with the public ministry of Jesus. And there's something interesting about this description that Peter gives. Peter mentions two things concerning this earthly ministry. He mentions Jesus doing good, and he mentions healings that showed his power over Satan. And what's interesting is that it's what he doesn't mention. What he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the, the various teachings of Jesus. Why wouldn't Peter mention the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse or, or the many sayings and parables of Jesus? James Boyce suggests that before anyone can rightly respond to Jesus' teachings, they first need to understand what Jesus accomplished by his death and turn from their sin and follow him. Christ's teachings are for those who have ears to hear, because otherwise, what do people tend to do with his teachings? They make him a justice warrior. They make him a moral teacher. And to them, Jesus is only about doing good, which is something no one can really do if they're not first united to Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells them. So here's a good lesson for us when it comes to sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. Don't start with the teachings of Jesus. Start with who Jesus is and that he came to save us from sin. People first need to repent and place their faith in Jesus before they focus on his teachings. Because inevitably, what an unbeliever will do with the teachings of Jesus is turn them into a moral lesson. And if, and if this is their focus, what will it do? It'll, it'll just lead them to self-righteousness, which actually moves them in the wrong direction. Where we begin is with the realization that I'm not righteous I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. And after this, the Savior will change me and he will tell me how to rightly think and live. The gospel is not first the teachings of Jesus, but the person of Jesus. And this emphasis on the public ministry of Jesus is an emphasis on his sinless perfection, which is what we need. We need Christ's sinless perfection in order to have peace with God. Again, no one is good. No, not one. And this is why we need Jesus, because he alone is good. He alone accomplished the good of God's law, earning righteousness that God requires. The public ministry of Jesus is is essential to the gospel because it's in his ministry that Jesus keeps the law, that he obeys God's commands. And he doesn't fail like our other human representative Adam did. Jesus is our hero. Adam failed and we all fell into sin. Jesus is the second Adam who perfectly obeyed where Adam didn't. 
Many Christians, they tend to think of salvation only in terms of being forgiven, right? They think of the doctrine of justification with a, with a saying that goes, justification, it's just as if I've never sinned. When the other half of justification says, it's just as if I've perfectly kept God's law. That's justification. In order to be at peace with God, to be accepted into his, into his holy presence, we not only need to be without sin, forgiven, but we need to possess something. We need to possess righteousness. The law is not just a bunch of don'ts. Jesus summed it up with some do's, saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not a bunch of don'ts. This is what we are to do. This is righteousness. And it's funny when I, I've heard people use this in contrast to the Ten Commandments as if this is easier. How you doing with this one? Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Loving your neighbor as yourself? How you doing with that? Well, Jesus did it. And if he didn't, you wouldn't be saved. Because this is the righteousness that God requires of us in absolute perfection. Have you ever realized that there, there is a sense in which you are saved by works? You are saved by works. We're saved by the good works, the perfect righteousness, the perfect obedience of Jesus that becomes our righteousness through faith. And this is an amazing part of our salvation. We're not only declared forgiven, we're also declared to be those who have perfectly obeyed God's law. We're declared righteous, perfectly good. And I know that that lands on us. And many Christians hear this and it, it just sounds like a fantasy, doesn't it? It sounds like, well, that's a nice idea that that's not real to me because I know the depths of my sin. I know that I'm not good. I know that I'm not righteous. And if you have these thoughts, or more likely when you have these thoughts, know that this is why the gospel is not only a message for unbelievers. The gospel is not just evangelism. We need the gospel. You need the gospel. It's good news that we need to continually tell ourselves. Believers are described as in Christ. And this is a beautiful reality of the gospel because what matters more than your own thoughts concerning yourself is knowing what God thinks of you because of Jesus. Yes, practically speaking, we still sin. We struggle against sin. And Satan condemns us. And he whispers in your ear, you're not good. You know it. You're not 
good. Dirty, rotten sinner. And one day, practically speaking, this struggle will be over because when we see him, we will be like him. You won't be able to sin. But what matters right now as you preach the gospel to yourself is that your your identity is in Christ. If you've repented of your sin and looked in faith to Jesus, then tell yourself what God's word declares of you. That there is now because of Jesus no condemnation. No condemnation for you. You've been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's the truth. Yes, only Jesus is without sin and only Jesus is righteous. And he freely, graciously gives us this identity. And God the judge legally declares that we're both forgiven And that we possess the very righteousness of Jesus. This is what it means to be justified. Jesus' earthly ministry made this possible. And he demonstrated his power over Satan's oppression. We We were spiritually oppressed. We were enslaved by Satan. And Jesus, he has healed us. He has set us free from the bondage of sin and death. So what are the ingredients of the gospel? Jesus gives us peace with God. He is the only son of God. He earned our good works. And of course, we can't forget the cross. In verse 39, Peter says that they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And when we hear this reference of being hung on a tree, we should think in terms of the curse Jesus was cursed for you. Paul put it this way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He did this for us. That is, he took our place. He was a substitute. Sin puts us under the curse of God. And all throughout the Old Testament, what do we see? We see see God showing his people that an innocent one, animal, but this is the principle An innocent one can take the place of the guilty. An innocent one can pay the price that the guilty deserves. The symbolism of the sacrifices showed us this truth. That an innocent animal could be brought to the priest and killed in the place of the guilty. And of course, this was only a picture of a principle that says God allows for this. The penalty of sin is death. And God will accept the death of an innocent substitute in payment for the guilty one. But the problem is, it's man's sin. 
And an animal is insufficient for that. We know that the death of an animal, it's, it's insufficient payment for the sin of man. And all of these sacrifices, they pointed to Christ. They pointed to Christ who would be the only sufficient payment for every single person in all of history who looks to him in faith. It's sufficient. It's sufficient because only a man can be a substitute for the sin of man. Man must pay. It's also sufficient in that only God is of infinite worth to pay the price for so many to the satisfaction of a holy God. Only Jesus, this is the unique nature of Jesus. This is why he's the only way. He's the only one. Only Jesus is truly man and truly God. Only Jesus is able to pay such a price by becoming a curse for us, taking the hell of God's rejection, pouring out, God pouring out his wrath upon him on the cross. So when we trust him, when we come to God on the basis of his death, our sin is, it's really removed. There really is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in the one who alone has brought us peace. Next in Peter's list of gospel truths is the resurrection. Verse 40 and 41 say, But God raised him on the third day. And made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. How do we know that our sins are forgiven? How do we really know that God accepts the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus becoming a curse, dying in our place? How do we know that, that this curse is gone? And we truly do have peace with God. We know because God raised him from the dead. In Christ, we died and our sins were fully paid. And in Christ, we are made alive forevermore. If Jesus, if he were a sinner, then his death would have only been a just punishment for his own sin. And he would have stayed in the grave. But justice demands that the innocent be released. He is sinless. He is righteous. And so the punishment of death could not hold him. The payment of his death was a just payment for our sin. And so God raised him from the dead. God vindicated him. And Peter is clear about giving details of, of seeing him and eating and, and drinking with him. And he does this to say, this is not just some wishful thinking on our part. This is not some symbolic victory. This is not a couple hundred disciples having a group hallucination. We're not saying this because we're, we're just desperate for it to be true. 
It wasn't a spiritual presence where they said, well, at least he's with us in spirit. No, Peter makes the point that it was real. The resurrected Jesus had a real body and they sat down with the real Jesus and had a real meal with him. Initially, they thought they were seeing a ghost. And this is why Jesus said, touch me. Put your hand in my side. Touch my, the holes in the palms of my hand. Touch me and see. This is, this is why he ate and drank with them. To prove that he wasn't a ghost, but that his resurrection was bodily. It was real. And the final point Peter makes is that we are to preach or declare that God has appointed Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. And there are two quick implications to this. First, we're commanded, we're commanded to speak. And if this seems like a lot of pressure or an obligation, then keep Pastor Bill's message last week from 1 Peter 3 in mind. I love the point that he made. He said, you are not going to be prepared to make a defense of your faith unless you have first set apart Christ to honor him in your hearts. We think about all the things that we're going to say. That was such a good point. Start here. Start with loving Jesus. Start with honoring him. Start with growing in your love and admiration for him. Start by, by growing in this way. Yes, share the good news now. But the more you love and admire him, you're going to find that you can't help but speak about him. Because we all tend to talk about the things and the people that we love. We can't help it. And if Jesus is our greatest treasure, then we're going to know that he's the treasure that everyone else needs as well. And the second, second implication from this is that there is a future judgment. There is a future judgment for all people. And deep down, atheists or not, they know God exists. They know that this is true. Their conscience tells them that one day, doesn't your conscience tell you, one, I'm going to have to give an account for my life just put into us. We know that that's true. There's purpose in the things that we do. So we're all going to stand before the judge. And this isn't going to be the relatable, domesticated character from those Super Bowl ads, he gets us. No, it's going to be, it's going to be the one with fiery eyes and a sword the one where people see him coming and cry out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb, fall on us. Jesus will come again as the judge. And the Old Testament tells us God is the judge. And so this is another evidence of Christ's deity. He is the eternal judge who sits upon his throne. He is the one that all of the prophets bear witness to. And the good news 
the greatest possible news, the news that we're privileged to share, is that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus receives the final judgment of peace, acceptance, and eternal life with him. The gospel is good news for all people. And Tim Keller, one of my, one of my favorite Christian writers, thinkers, pastors, he went home to be with the Lord this last Friday. And whatever theological disagreements people may have had with him, he was truly one of the most gifted, one of the most gifted communicators of the gospel that I've ever heard. Something he frequently said was, the gospel is this, we are more, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hope. It's good news, isn't it? Jesus gives us peace with God. Jesus gives us peace with God because he's the only son of God. The one who earned our righteousness, bore our sin on the cross, and then rose from the dead, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the reason for the hope that is in us, and it's ours to share. Let's pray together. Truly, Lord, you are our refuge and strength. Lord, you are our peace. You are the only unique son of God. You are our righteousness, and therefore there is no, no condemnation for those who are in you, Jesus. And this is true because you became a curse for us by dying on the cross. It's true because God vindicated you by raising you from the dead. You are the judge. You are the ascended king, the one who... The one who came on the clouds to the ancient of days, presented before him and given dominion and glory and a kingdom, one that shall not pass away. And so, Lord, we are your church, your body, your people, the ones who are to serve you by being witnesses to the greatest reality ever in sharing this good news. Lord, may we declare this to others and, and to ourselves, not listening to the whispers of Satan who wants to sift us like we cause us to stumble and be silent and ineffective for you. Lord, cause us to know and love the gospel because we know and love you. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus.